Well, hello, everyone, again, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I am delighted uh, to talk to Daniel Hakigaju. You are most welcome, Daniel. Thank you for having me, Paul. Uh, just a little bit of background for those who, uh, who don't know Daniel. He was born in Houston, Texas, and comes from what he calls a secular, a liberal secular Muslim background. He studied physics as an undergraduate at Harvard University and completed graduate studies in philosophy. It's a great combination, by the way, physics and philosophy. Um, he is a student of knowledge, studying traditionally with respected scholars. He's the founder and editor-in-chief of Muslim Skeptic, an alternative Muslim news research and opinion outlet. He's also the founder of Alasna Institute and writes and lectures on contemporary issues surrounding Muslims and modernity over the past 10 years and has spoken at universities and mosques around the world. I recently read his fascinating new book, here it is, The Modernist Menace to Islam, a Muslim critique of modern isms which is an uncompromising critique of contemporary ideologies, ranging from feminism to secularism to atheism. Daniel is very popular with many Muslims for his confident, no-nonsense defense of traditional Islam and his refutations of many aspects of the zeitgeist, which he believes threaten Muslim faith. Now, his book, The Modernist Menace to Islam, covers many subjects, but can we perhaps begin by looking at your views on feminism, which take up a, a big chunk of your book, actually? You mention in your book that at Harvard, you consider yourself a feminist because of the damage done by domestic abuse against women. Now you see feminism as not only a problem, but as a pathway to apostasy. Could you explain what happened? Well, I realized that, um, well, let me just start by saying Bismillah, Alhamdulillah, Salatu Wassalam, Ala Rasulillah. Uh, I realized that Islam, first of all, is a patriarchal religion. Islam is uh, patriarchal at its core. And feminism is contrary at its essence to patriarchy. Feminism is an attack against patriarchy. And so this was really the first sign that, look, if I'm going to be a Muslim, I cannot be a, a feminist. This is in feminism in Islam. So what I came to realize pretty quickly is that feminism doesn't have a monopoly over defending women's rights. Uh, feminism doesn't have a monopoly over protecting women from uh, legitimate domestic abuse, uh, you know, real cases of domestic abuse or domestic violence or what have you. Um, in fact, uh, all systems of morality claim to protect women's rights and men's rights and everyone's rights. That's what all systems of morality claim, but who is really true to that claim? Which system of morality is true to that claim? And when we do that kind of analysis and we do that kind of comparison, we see that feminism actually has created women who are oppressed and who are very unhappy, who are very, um, you know, beleaguered by the, the modern conception of what a woman should be and what a woman should do and how a woman should live. Mm. Um, 
And all of the studies and statistics bear this out, that women are more depressed than they've ever been in countries where they have the most, they, they, that score the highest on the so-called feminist index or women's rights index indices. So well, this, well, what is it, Daniel? Sorry, what is it, Daniel, specifically that is making women depressed in these very high feminist committed societies? Well, what's going on exactly? Do you think? Well, the the scientific research hasn't come to definitive conclusions because it's a highly politicized topic right. uh, that goes contrary to the zeitgeist as you said the the western modernist zeitgeist but as muslims i think it's we can see like when i look at my own family and i look to women in previous generations such as my grandmothers uh my grand uh, grandmothers my great grandmothers the way that they lived their lives and the stories i hear about how they were living uh, granted this is anecdotal but they were living very simple lives surrounded by loved ones taken care of by their husbands and their male family taking care of children and being in these very supportive loving households and that was the norm yes there were exceptions yes there are you know bad cases everywhere and these were extended families weren't they they weren't like our modern narrow nuclear family with just a mother and a father and 2.4 kids or whatever it is these are much broader family structures and networks weren't they i think yeah of course you had these extended families and and this is something that the vast majority of humanity has lived in this kind of um with this kind of family kinship structure mm. and you know even if we just want to purely take an evolutionary perspective if if we want to take a purely evolutionary secular perspective if humanity has been living in these kinds of networks with these kinds of gender roles for men and women and women through evolutionary processes have been conditioned to a certain kind of personality type, certain kinds of emotional uh, emotions, certain kinds of behavior, certain types of instincts. And then suddenly within the past 100 years, say, or 50 years, yes, take yes. them to a completely different mode of life, form mm -hmm. of life, then don't you think that that's going to have a big psychological impact mm -hmm. and uh, arguably a destructive one so i think even from an evolution purely evolutionary perspective that would make sense but from an islamic perspective from the islamic standpoint it makes sense as well that allah has created women with certain intuition certain uh, motherly instincts certain um, a certain need to have children a biological need to have children and nurture children mm -hmm. and family to be a, a supportive uh, wife uh, to be taken care of by a strong husband uh, who loves her and, and takes care of her and this is something that the modern world denies it, it fundamentally denies um, you can say nature or you can say it fundamentally denies the way that the creator has created uh, right. women and men yeah i mean there's um, a fascinating article by um khalid who I, I believe is your wife actually um uh where she wrote incredibly articulate um and hard-hitting piece uh, uh, about the myth or the lie as she calls it uh that women are told that they can have it all women can have it all so they can have a career they can have highly successful jobs and they can have a family and they can have children they can have everything and she's saying this is a lie because obviously it's 
common sense would suggest one can't have it all, but this results in this kind of existential crisis that leads to depression and unhappiness that you allude to. Would that be a key factor, do you think, in what you're describing? Yeah, why are these goals that women should have, you know, to be, you know, a C-level executive at a Fortune 500 company? And, Mm. you know, why should that be a goal for uh, women? Why should that be a goal for men? I mean, we should ask these fun, we should ask these fundamental Mm. questions about the meaning of life and how we should spend the limited time we have in this dunya on this earth. Um, why are these goals to pursue? Again, even if we take the assumption, the materialistic assumption that happiness is the ultimate end, okay, I think most people don't have a kind of um, reductionist understanding of happiness that, oh, happiness just means dopamine, neurotransmitters in the brain. And because if that truly were, you know, the kind of happiness that humans should aspire to, then we should just be hooked up to these kind of like, or given Soma, right? A brave new world, just be given certain drugs that will, um, you know, artificially create this sense, uh, this high of euphoria constantly. Like if, yeah. if that's truly, you know, our, our view of what happiness is and how it should be pursued. But no, we have a, we have a more complex, um, a profound understanding of human flourishing and and what true happiness in in the in its fullest sense means i think all humans share this um this kind of view and if that's the case then why would you know maximizing our income at all costs no matter what why would why would that lead to that kind of happiness why would you know becoming a you know, C-level executive for a Fortune 500 company, or, you know, becoming the most, you know, renowned academic in the university system, but you had to sacrifice uh, all meaningful human connection. Mm. And and really, I mean, this is, again, a, a scientific fact, and it's also a metaphysical truth that the deepest connections that we have as human beings are with blood, with kin. And, you know, we can obviously make connections, deep, profound connections with uh, others uh, who are not kin, but you cannot take a human being uh, and break him off of all family ties and expect that he will be in his best state uh, psychologically, even though we all know family members can be difficult. But that's also the benefit of having extended family, because if you if you have trouble with one or two family members, you still have an entire network, a support system uh, to to be able to live happily with and, and, you know, support. So you've mentioned the, the difficulties that this, this whole uh, the feminist thrust is, presents to, to women in terms of having it all and that, that being a myth. But you also did mention that feminism is a pathway to apostasy. And in, in your book, you, uh, you do outline several stages. It doesn't start off with apostasy, far from it. But as the end stage, I think it's stage five or something, where, where uh, after a series of, of uh, uh, struggling with the text and the hadith and the, the ulama and the scholarly rulings over the centuries, ultimately the Muslim feminists, as you, as you understand them, will end up apostatizing. Uh, what, what, what is this final end stage? Why do women, why do some women anyway, apostatize from Islam? Well, they, um, that's not their conscious goal or they don't necessarily consciously see it happening it's just something that they fall into because Mm. of what feminism commits them to intellectually and emotionally because the 
<clears throat> you know, the way that I describe the stages is that the first stage is basically coming from perhaps legitimate grievances with certain Muslim male figures that they see in their lives, maybe at the mosque or, you know, mm. in the broader community. And they have these criticisms and they feel like, or grievances, and they feel like feminism addresses those grievances. Um, but the thing is that feminism commits the feminist to a broader paradigm uh, or a broader commitment such mm. as the idea that patriarchy is inherently oppressive male authority is inherently <clears throat> excuse me uh, male authority is inherently oppressive and uh, anything that lacks female representation is inherently mm. uh, illegitimate so uh, that takes that takes them through down this path. So initially, it starts with these gr perhaps legitimate grievances with a local imam or mm. some figure somewhere in the Muslim community. But then, the because of these other commitments, that criticism cannot just stop with the local imam. It has to be extended to well all of the Islamic scholarly tradition. Because when we look at the Islamic tradition, it is predominantly Muslim men who mm. are the main intellectuals and, and the main scholars of, of this tradition. And mm. that's not to say that there have been been female scholars because there they there have been. Yeah. Uh, but they were definitely a, a very small minority. So then we have to ask the question, or the feminist will ask the question, why is this? And the answer that feminism gives is because uh, is that the men of this tradition have been marginalizing women deliberately mm -hmm. and have been actually silencing these women or holding them back, uh, preventing them from speaking. That's the feminist answer. So what this, this color is the entire scholarly tradition. You look at someone like, uh, Imam Ghazali, mm -hmm. uh, well, why isn't Ghazali, why isn't Imam Ghazali lifting up women and, you know, why is he, you know, not bringing someone, uh, you know, alongside him and trying to champion uh, women's voices? Uh, clearly, he's um, marginalizing women. He's actually silencing women. He has all of this authority and never once does he use it to uh, promote the visibility uh, of a woman's voice, for example. Uh, these are the kinds of thoughts thoughts that will inevitably come once you've bought in to the feminist mindset. Uh, and, and so this extends through all of Islamic uh, scholarship. And once you have undermined the moral legitimacy of all of these Islamic scholars, then really, how can you access the uh, Islam? How can you access Islam itself? The only reason that we have Islam the only reason that we have the Quran or we have Hadith or we have Fiqh, we have, you know, Tafsir or the spiritual sciences of Tasawwuf or any of these uh, important Islamic sciences, Ulum, is because of this vast, uh, rigorous uh, tradition of Islamic transmission the scholarly tradition. This is this is the only reason that we have it. So then you have un, you fundamentally undermined that tradition yep. just because of your feminist commitments. But but it doesn't even stop there because you have to start questioning um, hadith. You have to start questioning the Quran, mm -hmm. and this is where okay because you can still you can it, it's 
you know, questionable whether you can be a Muslim if you've rejected the Islamic tradition because you have no basis for making claims about the Quran and Hadith, or you're just being intellectually inconsistent. For example, you say, oh yeah, I believe in, um, you know, the this interpretation of the Quran. Okay, well, where did you get that interpretation of the Quran? Did you take it from a scholar? from the like from you know Ibn Kathir or Imam Qurtubi from the tafsir tradition or you just happen to have a understanding of the Quran on your own that happens to match the orthodox interpretation how convenient uh, but in reality we see most of these feminists completely heterodox and bring these deviant bizarre interpretations of the Quran um, and and academics such as Amina Wadud, for example, um, who says outright that we should have the ability to say no to the Quran. If we have a moral problem with something that we read in the Quran and we see that this is contrary to our conscience, then we should have the moral right to say no to the Quran. And she's yeah, being infamous. It's a very difficult thing to understand because the Quran is, or describes itself as the actual speech of God himself. So it sounds like they're, they're inviting people to say no to God. And people who say no to God are not normally characterized as believers, rather as anti-believers uh, and so on. I, I mean, I, I, I'm reading from a very moderate translation here. This is a translation of the Quran by Abdul Halim, the famous British um, scholar. Uh, and just the, the famous 434, uh, Surah 4, verse 34, which you allude to several times Um in your book, and there are different translations of it. And this is a very moderate translation. It says, husbands should take good care of their wives with the bounties God has given to some more than others and with what they spend out of their own money. Righteous wives are devout and guard what, what God has given them, uh, what God, sorry, what God would have them guard in their husband's absence and so on. But this is clearly patriarchal and this is God speaking. <laughs> Uh, if you're a Muslim, obviously, and there are many similar verses in the New Testament and in the Jewish Bible and probably in most scriptures in the world's religions, if not all scriptures of the world's religions. So to say no to, to, to God, whatever tradition you're in, is quite a big price to pay for your conscience, as you put it. Yeah, I mean, this is actually the nature of feminism from the first wave of feminism. Um, activists like Elizabeth Cady Stanton for example, or Susan B. Anthony, they were very rabidly anti-religious mm. and they identified like this is the main um, support behind patriarchy as a concept within society is religion. And mm. so they were, um, they understood very well their project to attack um, the church and to attack the Bible. Mm. Uh, they even wrote, you know, the woman's Bible as a kind of def act of defiance against the church like and this is we're talking about the 19th century imagine someone like a muslim today we we can complain about amina wadud <laughs> saying no to the quran but she to her credit she hasn't written a woman's quran right so this is but these are the these are the type of people that muslim feminists hold in high regard as the founders of the feminist movement and and it's it's anti-religion from mm. its very beginning 
So it seems to me, to, um, and people do this, they do, they're not just on this issue, but on the issue of the homosexuality issue and so on. They can say about the Bible, ah, oh, well, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 or 1 Corinthians 6, 9, he didn't really understand modern understandings of homosexuality. And therefore, what he said is strictly cultural, it's irrelevant, we leave it 2,000 years ago. But you're talking about the Quran, which every syllable claims to be from God. You can't say that God didn't understand. You know, he, he is eternally present. He understands everything. And this is his final commandment, his final word to mankind from a, a Muslim point of view. So you can't make that hermeneutical move. You, you're simply not open to one, uh, I don't think, um, Islamically anyway. Yeah, I completely agree. The Quran is setting a moral standard um, from the time of the Prophet, uh, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, till the end of time. And mm. if you're going to have a moral objection, that's going to create problems for your faith. Okay, well, that, that's that's very, very interesting. Thank you for that. Perhaps moving on now to uh, there, there are many many gems actually in this book. If people uh, get it, um, it's full of uh, very robust refutations of the contemporary zeitgeist. And there's just a, a little section here on page eighteen, if if I may, just read it to uh, viewers, just so they get a flavour of uh, Daniel's book. And it's and apparently an. Um, a not particularly gripping headline says the unintended implications of atheism but i thought it was rather clever he writes materialists naturalists and atheists have a long history of denying the existence of things that do not fit into their very narrow limited conception of existence god is always number one on their list of targets for denial but what the public does not realize and atheists do not publicize is that their naturalistic materialist philosophy requires the denial of much more than God. And this is where it gets interesting, I think. They do not want the public at large to be aware of this because then the people will wake up and see what a silly picture of the world these philosophers, or these philosophies rather, commit one to. For example, the strict scientific empiricism required by the new atheists the idea that the only things that exist are those observable and detectable by science also requires denying the existence of the mind and certainly the minds of others. Science has not detected the mind. Only electrical signals in the brain can be detected. But that is not the same thing as the mind, Daniel writes. Have you ever seen someone else's mind? It's a test we can all do. Have you experienced their inner thoughts? Have you felt their emotions? No. All we can see is external behavior. The internal mind of others is inaccessible to our perceptual faculties. So does that mean that we disbelieve that others possess consciousnesses like our own? If we consistently apply the standards of scientific empiricism used by atheists, that would be the inescapable conclusion. Doing so is preposterous, which is why we reject scientific empiricism and the simple-minded atheism that relies on it, end quote. So that's a typical bit of prose there from Daniel in his uh, book. Lots of punchy arguments uh, there. Um, uh, so I'll leave that for you. But is there anything you wanted to, to add to that? I mean, is it really the case we can't, we obviously we can't see people's minds. We can't know what people think. But is there no way of yet of gauging what the contents of someone's mind is? Are we really that in the dark about consciousness? Well, this is a common point that's made um, 
that's related to what's called the hard problem of consciousness. Um, but basically, uh, our thoughts and our, our feelings are things that are only accessible to us and they're, and it's completely opaque, uh, to mm -hmm. anyone outside of us. And so what scientists or neurobiologists can do is they can associate certain kind of signals, whether it's electrical signals or hormone signals, neurotransmitters, um, with certain emotions or certain parts of the brain are lighting up right. in their scans. But it's, but that feeling like, what is this person feeling or the phenom what's called the phenomenology of it uh, cannot be by its nature, by definition, cannot be experienced by anyone else. Does that mean it does not e exist? Right. Um, and, and there are many things that are non empirical and non-perceptible that we completely take for granted and we mm. have no problem accepting. Um, for example, the past, you know, the past, do we really, how can we know that the, our memories are uh, of what has happened in the past haven't just been implanted? Mm. And this is actually what they would say, one of the professors uh, at Harvard uh, in, in his classes, he would begin the class by saying, well, how can you can anyone prove to me that we didn't just pop into existence five minutes ago and all of our memories of the past also uh, our brains came loaded with that kind of false information? Can mm. you prove to me that that's not the case? Can you point to anything empirical that would disprove that? No, you can't pr point to anything empirical because because of the way that I've defined the problem, those have also been just created five minutes ago. Yeah, this is a Cartesian skepticism, uh, Rene Descartes' methodology of systematic methodological doubt. But then he said, well, I, I don't doubt that I'm doubting, cogito ero sum, uh, I think, therefore I am, I doubt, therefore I am. But of course, the repository is, and presumably it's implicit in your point, that even that thought could actually be implanted by an evil genius into my brain, which is like in a vat, and even that could be artificially created. So unfortunately, even Cartesian skepticism doesn't, uh, uh, it's not skeptical enough, uh, I would argue anyway. Well, yeah, so this is, um, hmm. the Cartesian skepticism is, is one mode of skepticism in Western philosophy. The other um, more influential form of skepticism that has been adopted by atheists is Humean skepticism from David right. Hume. Yeah. And um, this is actually what the, the passage you read is alluding to. It's Humean skepticism that insists on empirical data hmm. and sense data, the, our understanding of everything is because our senses are taking in information from the world and and our mind forms this kind of map of the external world but how can we be sure that that external world exists and this is the kind of questioning that Hume presents mm. and it leads him to a kind of solipsism actually yeah because he denied causality even he said that we can't be sure that a cause b like the billiard balls famously but how, how do we know how do we know that fire burns wool how we, we can't and this was taken up ironically well not perhaps ironically in occasionalism and asherite theology where you have this um similar um worldview yeah, he's saying causality is a, uh, an illusion. The reality mm. is just one thing happening after another yeah. in, in a linear uh, timeline. And it's only our, an illusion of the mind that there's a cause and effect. Mm. So, <clears throat> yeah, when it comes to this kind of skepticism, like any atheist should really be a solipsist. 
Mm-hmm. Because the kind of skepticism that's used against God applies just as much to all of these things in that humans take for granted as truth, mm-hmm. but they're not non-empirical truths. There's no empirical you know, uh, proof of the internal mind or the past or time itself. What is time? It's not a material thing. Um, no, time passes. Yeah. Yeah. We take all of these things for granted. But this, so if you look at, at some debates that atheists have, um, some of the top atheist uh, public intellectuals, there is one person, Matt Dillahunty. Have you heard of this guy? I haven't actually, no. Perhaps I should have. Yeah, he's he's American, and he uh, is probably the most well-known YouTube atheist, but he often engages with people like Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins. I've heard of Sam Harris and Dawkins, yeah. Yeah, he's like one level below them in terms of his notoriety. But but he was actually pressed, you know, or he's often pressed by Christians on these kinds of issues and ultimately he has to concede that yeah I, I really can't refute solipsism I can't deny that I'm not a solipsist despite wow. you know despite myself so they can't just come out and be card carrying solipsists because no. it's so absurd <laughs> to most people it's it, so confusing isn't it because you can't say anything meaningful if, if, if we are the if I am the only reality I should say because I can only speak about myself as a, a solipsist, solipsist but what do you think about I mean this is slightly changing going away from your book but uh, even Temir's response to this kind of radical skepticism which is a completely reframe the whole issue strikes me as rather compelling you know saying well we can't say anything about uh, external reality if we go down the radical skeptic road so we need to uh, you know rooted in our fitra understanding of causality and so on god is a fundamental of that reality and without god we can't have anything no perception nothing intelligible can be said about reality whatsoever so you know there are some things that are just given that we have to work with and accept and that we can't go behind them if i've understood ibn timir correctly yeah, I, I understand him uh, and, and those who argue in this kind of Tamian line as mm. making a sort of transcendental argument. Mm. Um, and it's what well, I mean by transcendental argument, because this is an argument that's also picked up in the Western tradition by mm. people like Immanuel Kant. Uh, and others, but basically the the idea of a transcendental argument as a response to Hume, the kind of skepticism that Hume has mm. is that by virtue of speaking or, or thinking about these issues, yeah. um, that has to presuppose a reality. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and so this, so you cannot doubt. Uh, it, it would be uh, you know the kind of contradiction as uh, analogous to saying this sentence is false, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. right? So that yeah. that kind of performative contradiction. Yeah. Uh, so this is, I think, a very interesting and sophisticated argument against human mm. skepticism. I think it's a defeater of human human skepticism, and uh, that's the way that I read Ibn Taymiyyah when he's discussing mm. the fitra. Yeah. Okay, um, moving on then, um, as someone who studied physics at Harvard, what do you think is the best evidence for the existence of God, the creator of the heavens and the earth? Well, I find um, a lot of the arguments to be intuitive mm-hmm. um, and to, ha- to carry uh, a lot of intuitive weight. Um, I think that human beings are uh, natural theists, 
Um, this is actually the statement of many uh, psychologists mm. today that they say yeah. that humans are uh, naturally theistic yeah. and that we are born as theists, believing in a creator God. Mm -hmm. And they do studies of children. And I did an um, actual episode of this series on my YouTube channel, uh, Genius of Islam. And there's the second episode of this series is dedicated to atheism. Mm -hmm. And so I cite different um, academics in that, non-Muslim academics in that, where they acknowledge that when we look and we asked children at a young age, you know, who created you know, a car, who created a house, who created, you know, a building. Child, children will say, well, a man, these are, these are all man-made things. Mm. Uh, and, but when they ask the children, okay, who created this mountain? Who created this ocean? Who created the sky? Children will say, oh, God, God created that. Mm -hmm. And these children are not necessarily in theistic cultures. Mm -hmm. So Japanese children were asked this question. Uh, and they, they uh, th what's fascinating is that Shinto religion doesn't have an, a concept of a creator God. Mm -hmm. Like that concept is absent in the, the religion. So you can't say they were socialized to give this kind of response. Um, Olivera Petrovich is the researcher, she's, she's an Oxford researcher, and, and she wrote a paper and then a book about this. And so there are many kinds of arguments. Uh, I think there's the um, cosmological argument, the contingency argument. I prefer or I, what I find very compelling to me, and I guess uh, Ibn Taymiyyah, Rahimullah, would also agree with me, is that the, I guess what's called the design argument. Uh, yes. uh, so there, when I look at the into the world and, and I see the uh, complexity and the beauty and the grandeur, uh, the sublime nature of the world around me, and you know, and I, I reflect on the the human body or the human cell mm -hmm. and the complexity. Mm -hmm. I just there's I I can't. It's not like I'm doing a kind of a deduction in my mind that oh, okay things are complex therefore god exists rather i just see that this is a creation of god i just ex experience it as this is from from god and so i don't i don't think that i think there can be many compelling arguments deductive arguments inductive arguments abductive argument to the best explanation arguments that can be given to establish uh, the existence of God. But I think ultimately what drives the compellingness of all of these arguments are deep intuitions that we have, which, which is the fitra. But if you don't want to accept, if a non-Muslim doesn't want to accept the idea of, of fitra, just look at all the research that shows that children are born with this kind of understanding of the world that it's a create that's been created. You know, there's, there's research that's been done at Harvard University, at your Malta, and in Oxford uh, by academics, not religious, but psychologists and uh, others, uh, investigating uh, the question of, of children's belief. And it seems to be universal, as you say. Every culture, every civilization throughout history, as far as we can see, uh, uh, bears witness to uh, this belief. Um, and and it, it doesn't seem to depend on a particular religious context. Shintoism, as you say, is not a theistic uh, religion. And the Quran itself endlessly reiterates this, the signs, the ayat, the, the, of God's uh, power, of, of his majesty, of his create, creative uh, ability um, in creation. So, um, yeah, no, that's, that's very good. Thank you. Um, if we can just shift gear a little bit here, perhaps to 
another subject that you're very passionate about. Um, and I'm in France, and they're passionate about it here too. And that is secularism. Uh, we have a religion in France. It's the official religion of the French Republic, and it's called secularism, laïcité in French. Um, you don't like secularism very much. <laughs> so, so it's an understatement of the, the, the of the hour. Um, what's wrong with secularism, Daniel? Where where can I start? <laughs> how, much, how much time do we have? <laughs> okay. Yeah. So. Um, Secularism is, I mean, from uh, any kind of believing uh, perspective or standpoint, secularism is uh, completely anti-religion. Obviously, the deeper point is that it's a human, because remember that if, uh, as we claim, human beings are theistic inherently, naturally, you have a system that is... Um, taking God completely out of the public sphere and saying that God has no relevance to the way that we ultimately organize our lives and the way that we ultimately run uh, our society. Uh, So this should be understood as an anti-human ideology, an ideology that is actually going to destroy humanity. And and this is, I think, what we are seeing. I think secularism Mm -hmm. is destroying humanity and this is what i argue in in the book and in many many places but a lot of as as a sign of the fact that this is happening take these universal human values that muslims share with non-muslims like the value of marriage you know we all value uh the idea of marriage love between people let's just say love you know, uh, and forming these kinds of romantic relations between people uh, of the opposite gender. Let's say that this is a universal value. How about the value of family? Mm. You know, whether it's nuclear or extended family, there, there's a human who is going to say that no, family has no value. I mean, that would be the extreme minority. Most people say, yeah, this is something that human beings value, having healthy, happy families. What about community? Uh, communal bonds um, and and human beings naturally form groups and that that is you know in the modern world because of how much uh, secularism and modernity has destroyed these kinds of relations nowadays people uh, congregate around these artificial relations like uh, what sports team do you love like let's rally around Manchester United or Liverpool or what and they get very aggressive around their team but they have these kinds of deep bonds with their fellow fans uh, around sports for example or um, I don't know Star Wars or Harry Potter or whatever Mm -hmm. Uh, these kinds of these kinds of uh, this forms identity um, so communal identity is another very important part of the human experience. And, uh, and then religion, as I mentioned, religion is also very important to human, to human beings. Mm. So all, on all these fronts, secularism is destroying all of these things that we value. Me- the pair bonding and romantic bonding marriage and also long-term committed relationships have been have gone off a cliff how how, how, i didn't quite catch that how is secularism directly attacking or undermining undermining family or 
uh, love, uh, marriage, and so on, in the way you're describing? What, what's the, the causality there? So secularism is, uh, pro- again, pa- part of secularism is liberalism. So whenever I um, write or I discuss um, secularism, I pair it and I say that we have right. liberal secularism. Okay. And liberal secularism is based on this philosophy that we have to maximize individual liberty and we have to maximize uh, equality. And that cannot be done, according to a secularist, if the law of the land is based on a particular religion. So these things go hand in hand uh, and they're synonymous in in many ways. Uh, But uh, when you are prioritizing individual liberty, um, then this is going to create a lot of problems in these other domains of life. Why? Because if your marriage, for example, requires you to sacrifice your individual preferences, marriage requires you to sometimes say, okay, this is what I would prefer. This would give me the most gratification, uh, instant gratification, but I have to put that aside for the sake of this marriage, this institution. Um, that that is a cost that the liberal secular world order is constantly conditioning us mm-hmm. to avoid making those kinds of sacrifices and you yeah. see this online i mean social media is replete with uh mm-hmm. these uh, men and women who will admit like oh i'm just so tired of my relationship mm-hmm. this guy is holding me back uh my wife is holding me back i'm tired of it i need to pursue my own dreams i need to pursue my own life I, my own interests he's this so there's this constant drive to prioritize your own interests and your own dreams and your own career that puts marriage uh on the back burner so that's marriage what about family family look at the kinds of lives that people are living individuals individualistic lives where fam why should i care about my parents why should i care about my uh aunts and uncles they're irrelevant this is something that is not relevant to me pursuing my life goals in fact i'm going to move to the other side of the world uh for a job even though it means i won't see any family member for maybe months or years at a time that's fine like this is the kind of this is there's not not even a second thought about that in the in the modern mind like wow. yeah of course who and if, if someone were to say that actually no I, i'm i prefer to stay in my hometown because i want to be closer to my family that's seen as something weird <laughs> that's seen as something uh, quite unusual oh really you want okay that's that's interesting choice that you're making you're sacrificing your career for family so these are what's happening now is that all of these important human bonds and human ties are being dissolved and there are all kinds of statistics that, that show how much uh, marriage, family, communal bonds, all of these are, are suffering uh, to such a huge extent um, and, and religious belief because of this liberal secular world order that is being imposed everywhere. Hmm. Well, this, 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 this really makes very acute, though, the position of Muslims, and not just Muslims, there are some traditionalist Catholics, perhaps, maybe some traditionalist evangelicals, ultra-Orthodox Jews as well, but particularly Muslims, due to the numerical, the sheer number of Muslims in the world, of course, is that if, if Muslims are at odds with the liberal secular order, with the American Republic, with the French Republic, 
and with Britain as well, because it's more or less the same thing, even though there is a monarchy, um, then they, they, they could be perceived then as out of touch with the social order. So what is the role of Muslims in these countries? And if they reject the prevailing social order, lock, stock and barrel, then they are suggesting the alternative, which is whatever an Islamically run or a society that is run in accord with the divine law, understood as Sharia or the Halakha or Christian law, whatever that may be. Um, so it, it, what I'm trying to say is that the, the, the Muslims and these other groups are then perceived as dissidents, as radicals, as revolutionaries, as counter-revolutionaries. It's not just like a just a view to have. It has repercussions politically, does it not, in terms of stigma, in terms of labelling, subversive, dangerous, whatever. So, And, and this is quite a, a risky, in today's world, that's quite a risky position to take, is it not? In the United States, in France, Germany, Britain, that the one could be labelled certain bad words by the authorities, by the state, by the police, by the media. So that this is not just an intellectual game, and I'm not suggesting you are saying it's a game, but it's much more than that. It, it affects how we're perceived by our peers, by the state itself, is it not? Well, yeah, of course. I, I think that the way that you've described it is exactly the way that these liberal state authorities understand it and this is why they spend so much uh resources to crush any kind of dissent against the yeah. liberal order and um look at how much uh money and resources they have spent in the uk in the us and canada mm -hmm. australia to attack muslims and to uh, demonize muslims and to basic and this is just in their countries look at the kind of uh operations that they've been doing in the muslim world for the past mm -hmm. 200 years with colonialism and, and neo-colonialism mm -hmm. to stamp out any kind of uh, non-liberal political expression Th yeah. this is the most brutal the most brutal type of crackdown is on Muslims because Muslims are the only ones who have not um, basically compromised on liberalism and secularism, and we've been insistent that no, because we we're we recognize what is at stake. We're talking about a human. If we're talking about humanity itself, it's not just Muslims. So when we advocate, and when I write. You know, the, the book, Modernist Menace to Islam, it could have been the modernist menace to humanity. You know, mm. it's because it's not just Muslims that are impacted. It's the entire globe. Humanity yeah. itself is uh, being impacted. Uh, I just want to say, say Danny, if, if I may, um, some people may see you as a radical voice, a dangerous voice. And I just wanted to um, juxtapose that with a video I saw on YouTube. It came up a couple of days ago with someone I happen to know. Uh, he's variously known as Dr. Tim Winter at the University of Cambridge, a very mild-mannered professor, a Sufi. He's a convert to Islam. He's also called Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad. As I say, he's a, he's a Muslim. I mentioned him because he is a very moderate figure, but on a recent video, he had a, a discussion, much like we're having uh, on YouTube, but it's there now. He publicly criticized the what's called the prevent program in the UK. This is uh, labeled as a government or police program that is ostensibly uh, you know, protecting the public, preventing terrorism, extremism. But he was criticizing the chilling effect that this has had 
on the Muslim community in just speaking out on everyday issues. And this is him saying this. And I know Tim, I mean, Abdul Hayyam Rad, he, he is not someone given to speaking out, <laughs> really isn't, uh, on these kind of things. He is a very mild figure. And for Tim uh, Abdul Hakim Murad to speak out publicly like this shows the level of frustration that at every level. And he was saying, look, this, this program, this state program, um, Muslims feel targeted by it and they feel they can't speak out on certain issues. Now, he didn't say what the issues were, but I can tell you what they are because I happen to know what they are. They are Muslims can't speak out about Palestine. They can't speak out against Zionism. Why? because it's anti-Semitism, so-called, allegedly. Uh, and they can't speak out on LGBTQ issues very often because they'll be perceived as haters or whatever. So the whole discourse on many controversial issues has been shut down. Um, so it's not just Daniel, I just want to let viewers know, it is a, a, a wide range of Islamic uh, intellectual uh, content it is, um, is being affected by this liberal authoritarianism both in britain and oh, i know it happens in france and elsewhere and possibly in america too so it's a serious problem across the board i think yeah and, and this kind of censorship um mm. and these kinds of programs like you mentioned yeah. prevent in yeah. the u.s is called cve countering violent extremism okay. um these programs are expanding rapidly like uh, muslims were the first uh, targets of these programs now it's expanding basically anyone who has a conservative view Mm. Uh, on any of these issues, whether it's LGBT, whether it's, you know, immigration, whether it's any of these kinds of issues, if you have a conservative view or even uh, women's issues, then you are you're considered a violent threat um, and you will be surveilled. You will possibly be detained. You'll possibly end up on a no-fly list. Uh, your bank accounts can be seized or frozen. Um, all of these kinds of things, uh, it's more than just chilling free speech. People are being thrown in prison. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and, and if you're and if you are in the Muslim world, you could be assassinated. You could end up, you know, being disappeared uh, into some mm -hmm. cave somewhere or some uh, black site. All of this is has been used, and why why is this um, uh, massive surveillance net or as you called it liberal authoritarianism expanding? It's because more and more people are realizing that liberalism doesn't deliver the goods. Liberalism was supposed to be the path. Liberal mm -hmm. secularism was supposed to be the path to prosperity, to this kind of utopia of complete equality between people. And we'd all be living happy lives with our families, uh, with our w wives and children and be able all we all people want to do is go to work, you know, whatever work it may be, earn money, bring it back to their family, enjoy life, you know in the comfort of their a home that they own, not be under crippling debt, not be constantly worried if they've gotten the latest injection of whatever experimental drug, not be worried about all of these kinds of uh, programs aimed at children, uh, trans, you know, drag queen story hour. And um, did, did you see the latest news about the, a Lutheran church that brought a trans uh, person or drag queen to read a Christmas story to children? <laughs> no, like, this is in a Lutheran church. Gosh, yeah, yeah, Lutheran church in America. So th this is the kind of 
world that liberalism has created, that liberal secularism has provided, and people are waking up and realizing that this was all false promises. This is all false promises, and now more and more people are being pushed under the poverty line in the supposedly superior West. You know, look at the amount of people on the level of homelessness mm. in the major U.S. cities. I don't know how it is in, in France or the UK. In, 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 in Britain, in London, where I, I, I'm also based, uh, I've never seen anything like it. On almost every street corner, you see people literally sleeping in the streets. And, uh, you know, we, we, I feel powerless. I mean, what can one do? Uh, it's extraordinary what you're saying. Absolutely true. Yeah. So then people, this is leading to massive societal discontent. And that is a volatile situation. And so yeah. the, the liberal state has to crack down, basically, and to maintain its power. And so it's going to get increasingly violent. It's going to get increasingly brutal. And the thing that distinguishes our time from uh, uh, points in history is that now they have the technology to actually put up a very good against a population where 90% of people are dissatisfied and want to overturn the power structure. Now there, that there are technological ways, it, either we're at that point or just to be about that point where it, it's going to be impossible to change anything. Um, unlike in the past, in the past, if there was enough societal discontent mm -hmm. and enough people got into the streets, you could overthrow you know the the ruling authority but we're reaching a point because of technology where that is not there's not going to be any kind of popular uprising that can be successful because uh of the technocratic state hmm. gosh that's gloomy <laughs> <laughs> yeah. this is this is my life paul this is my life uh, <laughs> but surely it's not the whole story daniel i'm not being flippant here i i mean this seriously if the Quran teaches me anything, it's that God is in control. God is the Lord of history and that nothing happens apart from his will or agreement and so on. So from a Muslim point of view and also from a traditional theist view more generally from the Abrahamic faith, surely there's more to this bad news than just the crumminess of our situation. That God is, however bad things are, the Lord of history is the lord of history is that not the case yes i <clears throat> i don't think that we should ever lose hope and there's the famous uh, statement of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam peace be upon him where he says that if you are in the middle of planting a tree or planting mm -hmm. a sapling and the day of judgment <laughs> comes or, or the basically the apocalypse descends at that moment just continue to plant the tree you know mm -hmm. so even in that moment you're literally seeing the apocalypse with your own eyes the mm -hmm. advent of the end in in front of you but you're in the middle of planting a tree well what you'll never see the fruit of that tree the the end is already nigh Mm -hmm. uh, but the prophet, peace be upon him, says, no, continue to do your work. So this is, I think, uh, very relevant to our times. Uh, but when we look at Islamic eschatology yeah. and what Muslims and, and the world is going to face, it is very gloomy. <laughs> it's, it's, not a, it's not a positive in, in many no, aspects. There's, there are going to be major uh, fitan. Or, or like these kind. I think you did a recent video on fitna or fitna, right? Fitna, yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, so this is some of the most difficult and trying fitnas uh, mm. are 
going to befall uh, Muslims towards the end of the time. Are we at the end of times now? Like, is, is are those major calamities going to befall now, or do we still have some time left? Uh, only God knows. Allahu uh, alam. But you know, the believer is can be living in the most gloom and doom. Uh, difficult times and Muslims have throughout history, but what? Uh, but that's as, as the Prophet Sallallahu said. That that's good for the believer because if he's patient with that, then he'll be rewarded in that yeah. in in the afterlife, and that is ultimately what is most important. I mean, can you? I, mean, I don't want to turn this into a big discussion about Islamic eschatology. As perhaps we're drawing to a conclusion, uh, both uh, societally and in this video. But what, what are some of the indications uh, that we might be seeing that are spoken of in the uh, eschatological or the apocalyptic hadith that are, are so well known? Do you have any indications of what they might be? Uh, the, well, I think that one of the themes. Like it, it, without going into one specific hadith, mm. um, one of the major themes of uh, Islamic eschatology towards the end of times are that everything will be backwards. Oh. What is considered good, what what is considered good, is in reality evil, and mm. what is truly evil will be considered something that's good. So, uh, so there basically it's a time of delusions and it's a time okay. of uh, deception, yeah. and people, for example, will the the most trustworthy person will be seen as a liar, and and mm. the biggest liar will be seen as trustworthy. Right. And um, also, when it comes to gender roles, um, masculinity will be turned into feminine femininity, and vice versa. Right. Yeah. So the this is, I think, we haven't seen any time period like we no. are. Uh, our time period now is categorically different than anything that we've seen in history, mm. and um, th these are the kinds of signs that I notice, and yeah. makes me feel like we're getting close to some kind of. Uh, final point. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, that's that's very helpful. Thank you for that. Well, uh, in conclusion, then, uh, Daniel, is there anything you'd just like to uh, share with us uh, as viewers um, before we close? Yeah. So I think that um, just to, to give more of a sense of where this this book is coming from, to make it mm -hmm. like a more personal. Um, uh, so in terms of my background, mm. uh, I'm Persian. So actually, uh, Iran, obviously Muslim country, has been Muslim for uh, centuries, and uh, I come from a long line of um, religious scholars, basically, and imams. So like on my mother's side, uh, my great-grandfather, he was like a mullah, or, or in, in Farsi it's called akhund. akhund. It's now, it's a pejorative term now. <laughs> Because oh, really? Iran, Iran has become so secularized, uh, oh, the people, no. the people have become so secularized uh, that now it's a pejorative term. And then on my father's side, um, great great grandfather, he was a qadi, a, a, a judge, right? And, wow. and that's where the my name comes from, Hariraju, because Hakikat. Uh, means truth in Arabic, haqiqat, and uh, Jew means seeker. So yeah. uh, as a judge, they called him haigatju, like the, he's the truth seeker, he's trying to find the truth of matter as a judge. So you have this long line of, you know, religious figures, and 
I, you know, my, when I look at this generation, my generation, when, throughout my extended family, like my father had 19 brothers and sisters. So, <laughs> so, so I have, you know, if you look at cousins and, you know, uh, uh, second cousins, I have hundreds of cousins, basically. And a very small uh, or the majority, the vast majority of them are secular. Really? Yeah. So, and, and even wow. though a lot of them move to the West, but even the ones that are still in Iran, they're very deeply secular and yeah. religion has, uh, Islam has, if they, <clears throat> if they're neutral, they might at best they're neutral about Islam, but many of them actually are antagonistic to Islam. It's funny. So I met so many Iranians who in London who are just, just like that. Actually, it seems to be maybe all of their recent history is informing their views, but yeah. Yeah. So this is something that, I, I think it is definitely Iranians, but uh, mm. uh, all all of these kind of Muslim cultures have are experiencing something like this, and yeah. so ultimately this is what led me on a journey of like, well, why, you know, has this happened? Like, just look at the loss, look at the, and I experienced you know a deep sense of loss just reflecting on all all of this um, has gone down the drain basically in the modern world. So there's this sense of tragedy. Um, that I think all Muslims experience, especially if they reflect, if they have a family like this. So, you know, this book is kind of like a coping with, with that, uh, yeah. that unfortunate reality. I, I'll just say, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. It's very real. It's just, in my experience, both when I was a Christian and, and, and now, I, I, I was struck by how many, uh, how robust the faith was of many young Muslim men and women in London anyway. Uh, the, the, the modernism or uh, skepticism or liberalism is not the dominant theme. I mean, so many young Muslim guys and so on who are very robust and they got lots of questions and they want to uh, and they want to go out there and, and do stuff. And um, I, I was impressed by that. I haven't seen that nearly as much in the Christian church in Britain and it's supposed to be a Christian country. Um, um, so uh, I'm, I'm not totally pessimistic. I, I think there's a robust, enduring faith in young Muslim men and women, as I say. Uh, it could just be my experience, but I, I, I'm optimistic, actually, for the future, although all these realities that you outline are very real. I haven't said that, so that's just yeah. my subjective yeah, it's impression. this kind of um, hegemony that is affecting everyone, and so mm -hmm. I think there are pockets of resistance, and we just should... Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just the ideological um, and, yeah. and intellectual resistance. I think we can, we should be concerned about other people, even non-Muslims, to call them and, and show them that, mm. look, all of this kind of modern malaise, you're suffering from it, you're a victim of mm. it, we're all yeah. victims of it, and Islam is providing a solution to that. At, at least recognize the problem. This is why I would say to Muslims, like at least non-Muslims, at least acknowledge that there is a problem uh, mm. in the world today, and that life, and on any objective standard, human life is becoming worse at least acknowledge that and then we can talk about possible solutions if you want to talk about christianity if you want to talk about um jewish law or whatever we can have that debate at some mm -hmm. point but at least acknowledge that all is not right <laughs> this yeah, this yeah. is serious uh what is happening to everyone okay that's great well thank you very much daniel uh, for your time it's an inc incredible uh experience hearing your views and I i'll link to uh the book uh, beneath and uh, everyone please do leave your comments in the uh, comment section below and um, thank you once again Daniel for all your time really appreciate it thank you Paul
Till next time. Thank you. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.